people used to ask Lumpocha where the practice begins. Does it begin with the keeping of precepts or the Vinaya? <clears throat> because in the books that's often how we, we talk about the practice, sila, samadhi and panya. But Lumpocha would often say it really begins with wisdom. To keep precepts and follow the Vinaya requires some wisdom, some understanding. Why we're doing it, what's the purpose? You need that in the monastery, especially when you begin training in the Vinaya <clears throat> because it's going against many of our old habits. We come into the monastery and undertake to train in the discipline of a Buddhist monk. Just the idea of that brings up some fear or uncertainty in people's minds. Concern about the level of discipline, level of renunciation. Brings up images of self-mortification, going without difficulty, poverty, simplicity. That's because we're in the lay life, we're so used to following desires, craving, moods. Already our kilesas and Attachments get nervous with the thought of the Vinaya discipline. Doesn't seem like much fun. Seems like hard work. And this is why we need some wisdom to reflect on why we do it. <clears throat> when we keep the Vinaya then we are going against the stream of our moods and desires. So inevitably in the beginning of the practice there's some discontent. Suddenly we are not able to follow every desire, every wish, every mood. So we experience a lot of frustration Actually, a lot of the dukkha that we experience is very ordinary. The dukkha of a human body, aches and pains, feelings of hot and cold. The dukkha of our mental states, different thoughts, emotions popping up. A lot of this is very ordinary, but because of our training in the Vinaya, 
the opportunity for distraction is limited, reduced. So we can't always just get away from very ordinary feelings of dukkha, which are part of the human experience. So we need to remind ourselves with, with wisdom, reflect on the purpose of the training. See that the long-term goal, the end of suffering is achievable, but any short-term feelings of frustration, suffering, if coming through the practice of the Vinaya with mindfulness and wisdom, they're just short-term suffering for long-term freedom from suffering. Something we just have to put up with in the very beginning. And then part of the discipline and the training is to not let those feelings of frustration come out. Not to take them out on other bhikkhus or laity not to take it out on oneself, turning around to self, aversion, negativity. And this is why we keep bringing up wisdom, wise reflection as we keep the Vinaya. And we reflect on the purpose of it and the results we're seeing. It keeps you out of harm. So you're developing a sense of well-being and freedom from remorse. A very important positive emotional experience. But sometimes we actually have to consciously reflect on our practice to appreciate this. There's one form of meditation, sila nusati, recollecting our precepts and our vinaya and develop a very wholesome state of mind, even develop samadhi from that reflection. And we remind ourselves on the value of the Vinaya training. It's preventing us from falling into patterns or modes of behavior that bring us stress, dukkha as a result. <coughs> and it helps us to cultivate very positive emotions and skillful states of mind quite automatically by developing a, an awareness and a sensitivity of the others around us, the world around us, the environment, people, animals, plants, because of the Vinaya is so refined, it's giving us guidelines for skillful behavior in all aspects of our life and helping us to develop a more caring attitude socially, more personal restraint, awareness, our speech, our actions, and the mental states lying behind them. Obviously as an idea, restraint 
in our society is not so fashionable. Say for lay Buddhists, someone was talking about the five precepts today and how a lot of people think, even Buddhists think that you keep the five precepts. Precepts, it means, you know, say the fifth precept can mean just not indulging in alcohol or drugs. So it's okay to take the occasional drink and it's useful for social reasons. If you don't drink at social occasions, you, people look down on you, criticize you and so on. But of course the way the training is, the Buddha was encouraging us to develop mindfulness, sobriety. And the rule means just you refrain from all forms of intoxicant all the time if you undertake that rule, that precept, to preserve mindfulness, clarity, and your intelligence at all the times. There's no way, no two ways around this. Where you have to have clarity, say as a layperson, maybe just, well, if you're not ready to keep the precepts, well, don't keep them. Be clear on that. Say, I'm not ready to give up drinking, say. You know that in your mind. Rather than almost like fooling yourself, you're keeping the precepts when you're not really keeping them. Or same with, say, monks and the famous one, Mani. The monk who came to stay with Lumpur Cha from a monastery where they did handle money and he's used to handling money and there's many monks who do it's seen as quite normal and those monks who don't handle money are seen as old-fashioned out of date, out of touch even looked down on sometimes and this monk came and said well can I keep my money, I'm not attached to it and the poor child said Yes, you can, if you can find me some salt that doesn't taste salty. Again, it's the sense that you know, you, when you're ready, you keep the rule and you keep it properly, keep it completely. Not to fool yourself or to harbour different forms of kilesa, craving and attachment by, in this case, using money or having money claiming to be not attached. So all the time we practice the precepts of Vinaya, we're training in mindfulness and wisdom, reminding ourselves of the purpose and looking back at the mental states that underlie our speech, our actions. And this is training the mind Obviously, you have to be patient with the unwholesome states of mind that arise, not to give in to them and follow them. That patient effort, perseverance with the, with the Vinaya training, it's already a purification process, developing right effort, abandoning negative mental states that you may formally have wanted to act on.
but you have to have that patience and wisdom keep applying that the result is that sense of well-being starts to grow sense of self-respect and the freedom of a mind that's no longer ruled or governed by kilesa at least on that level on the level of sila we have the choice to abandon the intention to speak in anger or act in greed so it's actually developing a sense of personal freedom liberation even though the way of the world is to see it somehow we're shackled by our precepts or attached to our precepts very limiting doesn't sound attractive to people who have never practiced in this way but the more you practice the more you appreciate the freedom that comes from a training in mindfulness training in the Vinaya training in wisdom and this is where we start to transcend suffering and part of it is just having the awareness to not act on unwholesome negative impulses and reactions to say no to our own greed, anger and delusion as it manifests on the more coarser level that would lead to unwholesome speech, unwholesome actions. But this um, experience of learning to keep the Vinaya follow it and having to deal with the frustrations and the discontent that that can bring up in the beginning requires some investigation, patience. You have to keep looking at what's going on so that we don't turn against the practice or blame, blame the Vinaya, blame the practice just to see it's a natural effect of increasing our level of renunciation discipline so what often happens when we forget this is we because we're feeling discontent not being able to follow desires cravings then we start to look at things in a negative way because of the discontent we have to guard against that it's easy to find fault, either we find fault with ourselves because we're seeing negative intentions coming up which cause us frustration, discontent, so we're not happy in ourselves or else we start judging others. As we're trying to keep the precepts then we look at others, we look down on some, maybe look up to some. This is a form of conceit based on our Vinaya training and a lack of peace we haven't yet developed through the practice enough inner contentment with our training and our practice so then it comes down, comes out in some of the, the way we look at ourselves and others around us we have to be careful of that Obviously we live in this world, there's plenty of negative 
things to focus our minds on, whether you're looking at the world outside or the problems in society, the suffering of mankind, humankind, or even just in a monastery, you know, people still have defilements they're working with. So it's easy to find fault, to find fault with others, with the place, with every aspect of what we experience, we can always find fault and pick on the negative aspect. But then, again, we have to use wisdom here and catch the mind that does that and see what we're doing. Because every time you dwell with negativity, what you might technically call ayoni so manasikara, unwise reflection, the opposite of wise reflection, we might dwell unwisely thinking in a negative way about our life, others around us, aspects of our life, things around us, the, the world. If we keep dwelling like that, then it leaves an impression on the mind. Every time you lose your awareness, lose your mindfulness, you're not reflecting on your mental states, well, the old negative habits kick in and we can dwell, abide with negativity very easily. One slightly humorous reflection Ajahn Chah had on this was the two different people who own chickens. In one chicken farmer, they go to their chicken coop every day and they have a bucket and they collect the chicken shit, take it home. So everybody in the house gets the smell. Everybody in the house is unhappy, discontent, because they keep bringing chicken shit into the house every day. It's no use to anyone, just stinks the house out. Not only the owner, but the, everyone else is unhappy. Yeah, the chicken farmer goes to their chicken coop every day and they collect eggs in their bucket. They leave the shit and they just collect the eggs. The first chicken farmer had just collected chicken shit and neglected to collect the eggs. So the eggs just go rotten, adding to the smell in the chicken coop. The second farmer, they collect the eggs, take them home. Some of them they cook cook an omelette or something, so everyone has something to eat. Even have more eggs left over, they can sell them, make some money. The house smells good, because when you cook eggs, it smells nice. Two chicken farmers, but totally different results. So he said, we tend to be like this. Dhamma practitioners even can be like this. One always dwelling on the negative, so they have a kind of a stinky state of mind, and the other dwelling on the positive, using their mind to reflect wisely, have a brighter, more fragrant state of mind. This is what we're learning at every level of our practice. So in the beginning, just on the level of sila and how we conduct ourselves on a daily basis, then it runs into our meditation, how we look after our mind through the day. So this is why we have to keep developing mindfulness.
keep putting effort into establishing awareness, focusing, paying attention to what's going on. Being willing to refrain even from the negative thought patterns. You know, in, the, in the beginning we refrain from negative speech and action. But as bhikkhus we're refining this to just the unwholesome states of mind that we come across in different situations. They have enough restraint, enough awareness to abandon them. Consciously let them go, not indulge them. Maybe it's the one time you can use some of that sort of more angry, aggressive energy that we all bring into the robes with us instead of turning it on other people or the world around us. We turn it on our own kilesas, but not in a way of self-harm leading to depression and misery, but just that energy to not give in to the negative states of mind that might keep popping up through our frustrations. Not to dwell on different moods with anger, not to dwell on negative perceptions about other people, ourselves, our life, our practice and so on. A part of right effort is that having that you might use the word oomph, the willingness not to give in. That's a redirecting, a rechanneling of our more negative craving towards something that's ultimately going to give a positive result. You're restraining and refraining from negative mental commentary on things, you know, the verbalizations of different feelings and emotions that might, might be there coming up. Just stopping the mental chatter based on that. That requires mindfulness and some wise reflection, but also some effort, some oomph. As Lumpo Anand says, you get up in the morning, just make a determination. Today I'm not going to give in to a single angry proliferation. Maybe an unpleasant feeling arises in a certain situation, but you're not going to give in to the craving that arises based around that feeling. And let the mind dwell with negativity. You just say no, cut it off. And even though that takes a lot of effort, if you do it, maybe even just for half a day already you can see there's a certain positive energy developing. I mean, this is the harbinger, the forerunner of samadhi. It's cutting off negative proliferation through sheer effort. Wholesome effort, patience, wholesome refusal, refusal to give in to a negative state of mind. You just keep doing that, well gradually it quietens down. The, ch the mental chatter goes quiet. And there's nothing lost. You know, when there's delusion there, then we have the sense of self and ego 
are reasons why we're following the mental chatter, the negativity. It all seems correct. So if you're to refrain from that, it seems like you're losing out on something. You're either being weak or something's wrong, something's missing. But actually if you do it and you start to become aware of the results, you realize nothing is lost, something is gained. You gain contentment. Some of the mental chatter passes. You gain some energy, brightness of mind. That energy can flow on to other things, can flow on to brightening the mind so that the mind doesn't go to dullness, sleepiness so much. Can lead us to put forth more effort in our sitting and walking or in our other activities, helping the Sangha, helping the monastery. As there's a causal effect that leads on maybe through our whole day. We're energized, we try harder and do all kinds of good things simply by refraining from some negative mental proliferation with effort, with restraint. And it releases a whole lot of positive good energy that we can put into our practice. If you get into that, mode and then you can see that something that you can turn to regularly then it almost becomes just second nature just automatic not to follow negativity of mind even if it returns the mind quickly knows this is what's to be abandoned not indulged there's no point A lot of our practice is like this, you're working with the mind in all postures, establishing mindfulness. So we become aware of <clears throat> what we're doing, posture, how we feel, and then the neg mental activity. A lot of it is very simple, just bringing the mind back to the present moment, cutting off mental chatter whether it's rooted in anger or, or greed or just delusion, a lot of random mental chatter not leading anywhere, just taking away our mindfulness. We spend a lot of time just quietly letting go of stuff, letting it pass, letting it cease, You're reflecting on the impermanence of mental states. course if you put effort into your sitting and walking meditation well you, you'll get more mindfulness you get better at doing this and the mindfulness becomes sustained especially if you do walking meditation you get you're able to sustain your mindfulness from activity to activity because it's not long before we'll be walking again if only from one room to another, one building to another. Even if you're just going to the toilet in your kuti, go to the toilet and come back. You get into the habit of establishing mindfulness every time you walk, constantly returning to the present moment. And you start to appreciate this point, how you can just let the mental proliferation cease. Nothing is lost. Peace and contentment are gained.
without almost, it seems with almost without having to try. The real gains from the practice are not things that we can grasp at, cling to and get through wanting. It's another part of our problem that comes up, especially in the beginning of our practice, is wanting results, wanting peace, because we have to experience some frustration and discontent. And we have less distractions to get away from it, so we want peace, so we want it quickly. That's often the very block towards the mind settling down, experiencing a bit of samadhi. Learning right effort, again, balanced effort that's continuous, but not so fierce or so with so much craving that just conditioning and disappointment and fr more frustration. We're not so lax that it's no, there's no effort at all. We're just following every mood, every feeling, every impulse. Again, this is a skill that we have to reflect on, use some wisdom to reflect and review on our efforts. <clears throat> Even great teachers, great arahants like Ananda had to reflect on this. We all know his, the story of his own enlightenment. All those years assisting the Buddha had to put his own practice on the to the side, and then desperate to attain arahantship before the, the first Sankhayana council. Really pushing all night, sitting and walking, determined to end the kalesas, but the very determination was just a little overdone. So attaining Nibbana in, at dawn when he just gave up and just lay down for a rest. Head hadn't re reached the pillow, he attained Nibbana. Sometimes that's the case for us, learning not to be so intense with our efforts that we we know how to just relax a bit and just be willing to sit, willing to walk without thinking of results so much. A lot of the time it's the other way around. Our effort is very lax. We don't even get onto the walking path. We don't even try the sitting. So of course there won't be, seem to be much progress. So over and over again Lumpur Cha would talk about wise practices, steady practice, continuous practice. Be willing to just keep putting effort in to sitting, walking, establishing mindfulness in different postures, different activities. Sometimes we have to consciously turn the mind to more wholesome objects. Not only have the mindfulness and the restraint to abandon negative proliferation, but actually put more effort into bringing up wholesome reflections to 
turn the mind to that which has a more beneficial effect on it, brightens the mind. So we have reflections on our sila, on our renunciation and the dana, the service we do. Reflections on teachers, sanghanu sati, turning the mind to reflect on the qualities of our teachers, how the words of inspiring and useful instructions they've given us, they're a good example. Reflecting on the Buddha himself, the qualities of the Buddha, the wisdom, the purity, the compassion. We have to learn how to skillfully turn the mind to wholesome objects and trust in the brightening effect of the mind. As the Buddha said, like the sun's rays on a flower, you don't have to force the flower to bloom, to the petals to open, it's just natural. Little by little they'll open with the heat of the sun's rays. The human mind is like that, it's just science, psychology if you want to put it that way. If you turn to wholesome objects, even just thinking, superficial, just thinking around, reading, thinking, it brightens the mind. And it's establishing new skillful habits taking you away from the negative more uh, thinking that's based around kilesa leading to more suffering takes you away from that. Remember Lumpur put reflecting on when he was a novice, one of his frustrations when he was a novice monk is how little you can give because as a lay person you can give things, practice dana, as a monk you don't have much to give. But we practice the Brahma Vihara, so we often have a, a mind to share, to give, to help others, but not often not sure how to do it. He's saying he was washing his bowl one day, and his teacher, it was Lumpur Sao, taught him to keep the Tudong tradition where you just eat what you take in your bowl, so you don't take lots and lots of food and leave a lot, because it's wasteful. You try not to do that, you try just to eat your bowl full of food, whatever you've got. So he used to do that as a practice, whatever he took he ate, not leave anything. And one day he was just washing his bowl and there's always a few stray dogs around, but there's one day as a particular very skinny stray dog came into the monastery and he could see it was, it was literally dying of starvation. It was hanging around the bowl washing area where you often get a few grains of rice that the monks tip away. And Lumpur put, or Samanera put, thought, hmm, this dog is really, it's about to die. What can I do? I've got nothing left in my bowl. Everyone else is gone. There's nothing for this dog here. It might even die today. What can I give? So he actually stuck his fingers down his throat he thought, hmm, this food I've just eaten, it's still fresh, it's only literally 10 minutes old. I'll see if I can help the dog. So he stuck his fingers down his throat and vomited up his meal. The dog immediately ate it up because it was so hungry. 
And he said he even vomited up a little bit of yesterday's meal. But then he stopped. He reached the end of his, his dana offering. So the dog completely ate it all up. Could carry on going for a bit longer. And he said he was young, strong enough, he could go without food for a day until the next day. He said actually that dana offering, he felt and brought, came back to him his whole life. He never went without food. Wherever he went, people always provided him with food, very good food. He said when he was later in life, when he became the abbot, the opposite was the problem. People were showering him with too much food. They all want him to eat their special food, special dishes, and you can only eat so much as one single person, one belly. And there even some people offered him very fancy food that he couldn't eat because he had so much food offered to him. He could only take a tiny bit. Maybe he missed somebody's food offering they go home and cry their eyes out. Maybe that's the suffering of a, an enlightened teacher, or not the suffering, but a problem of the enlightened teacher. Disciples who are so frustrated that their food is not eaten, and they go away crying their eyes out. Even when we're a novice and we think we got nothing, no barami, nothing, he found a way to make barami, dana barami. As we chanted yesterday, you might call that dana upa barami. When you actually give up some of your body, a body part, like when somebody donates a kidney, he donated his undigested food for a dog. So dana upa barami, he brings very powerful results. In our practice, you know, there's ways we do that. We can, Ajahn Chah used to say, if you're angry, you know, give it away as a form of dana. Not in the sense you go and argue with someone or harm somebody because of your anger, but you just give that angry mood, angry thought away, finish with it. Greed is the same, just give it away when you have lust or sensual desire. Just give it away from the mind. Not to anybody, you, know, you don't indulge it, but you just give it out, abandon it from the mind. If you have a lot of greed, well then often a good way to counter that is to do acts of kindness to others. Do a favor for others, do something for the monastery, an act of service. The very opposite of what your mind is telling you, but it totally redirects your thinking. Maybe if you're just missing some comfort, food, or some possession you would like, when you have sexual desire, whatever, you do the complete opposite and go off and do something that's totally selfless, altruistic, even if nobody else knows about it. Just go and do some act of goodness or kindness. You completely redirect your mind and you'll notice, well, the original greedy or lustful state of mind passes by. It's impermanent. What's impermanent is not self. 
It's just a mental state which you don't have to follow, you don't have to act on. The more we practice like this, the more that insight becomes established, the easier it is to deal with the hindrances and the more the sense of well-being and contentment that underlies samadhi arises. Just get used to letting go of greed, anger and delusion and all their offshoots, offshoots, all the 16 upakilesa. The reason kilesas are a problem is because we take ownership of them. We don't see that they're an dukkha anatta, we identify with them. If you get used to not following them, establishing mindfulness, letting them cease, then you're teaching yourself this is wisdom arising. These things are not self. They don't have an owner. You don't have to get involved with them, stirred up by them. You can just allow them to cease all by themselves. If you can see something is without an owner, it's not self, then there's no problem. There's no suffering. There's no burden. If you walk around and you, you still have the perception, I am someone with a lot of kilesa, yeah, really it's another kilesa, isn't it? It's conceit. You may say it's true on one level, of course. We come into the practice, we've got kilesas affecting the mind. But we're also looking at them now the way they are. They're just mental states that arise and cease. The Kalesas don't have an owner. They're not a part of us. They're not a person, a being, me or you. So we don't have to look at it as I have a lot of Kalesa or that monk has a lot of Kalesa. It's not like that. They're just things of, of the world. And when we see through them, see them as they are, we transcend them. So Ajahn Chah once said, for the Arahant, there's still Kalesa there, as it were, but the mind just doesn't take it up, doesn't take ownership of it. So it doesn't affect the mind. The mind is separate, peaceful. We're experiencing that when we establish mindfulness. And if we have more continuity of mindfulness, then we can experience it for periods of time where you just don't follow anger, you don't follow greed, don't follow lust, don't follow worry. And you're seeing the mind in a different way, so you don't have to identify with the old perceptions of having lots of kilesa and being a certain way. You just think, mm, actually, this is just another perception arises, ceases. So tonight is uh, one prayer, you can practice and uh, carry on, 12 o'clock, finish with a bit of chanting. So I'll leave you with these reflections. <clears throat>